The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church. I'm glad that you are um, gathering here with us today. Um, go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles to Mark, if you haven't already done so, the Gospel of St. Mark, as we approach week 42 um, in our journey through, verse by verse, through this particular book of the Bible. And if you don't have one yet, uh, we have scripture journals for you. Jordan's back there. He's got them. There's an artistically inspired uh, copy of the Gospel of Mark with uh, journal pages, and then there's uh, just the, the words of Mark and journaling pages, but they're there for you. Uh, you can hop up right now and grab it and begin kind of jotting down some takeaways and questions and whatnot um, through our study together. Um, <clears throat> as we begin, I just want to say uh, thanks to all those who worked so hard to pull off our men's retreat um, this weekend. It was a fantastic time, nearly 50 men, um, and we got a picture of the guys. Look at that. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, there's some good men in there. You got to look hard for them, but they're, <laughs> there's a couple, I see. Um, no, I'm just kidding. We had a blast together, and uh, that's actually one that's not, well, John Sproul had to do something, didn't he? <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, <laughs> thanks for uh, participating, those who did. And if you missed out, man, we'd love to get you involved in the next one. The ladies, um, they're having their retreat the same place um, next month, and I believe registration is live on the app. I'd love for you to be able to, to, to participate in that, uh, ladies. So um, as we begin uh, looking into this passage, we have to consider context so that we don't, uh, we're not leading ourselves into error um, and away from the intent of the original author, who is Mark and who is God, who inspired it. Um, so let's uh, understand that. So recently, John, uh, one of the disciples and the other 11 disciples, um, you might remember, uh, they tried stopping a man um, who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, which is the name to do so. Uh, but because they didn't know this guy, and maybe he was doing things maybe not as correctly as the disciples were doing it, uh, they told him to stop. And then Jesus told them not to stop him, this man, from doing kingdom work. Uh, he said this, you can see it there in Mark chapter 9 and verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. And then Jesus said in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, this, of course, referred to young people in general, um, as he was still there with the little boy that he had called from the audience to use as an illustration of the simplicity that were to come with Christ and what true greatness looks like in context of chapter 9, the latter portion. Uh, but it also referred to those who were young in the faith, those who were clumsy in the faith, which is good news for us because that's us. That's us. Um, but it also could be referring to this fellow who was casting out the demons, Maybe this, the guy who was working to cast out demons in the name of Jesus was doing the most with what he had. Uh, maybe he was doing his best with whatever it was that he knew, with his mustard seed of faith and his childlike willingness to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus and help those who are oppressed and to do so in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus was warning the disciples to not shut this man down, not hinder him or cause him to sin, or disbelieve in some way, but to leave them alone and to move on with their business. And then following this moment, like as a part of this conversation, on the heels of this conversation, Jesus gives other warnings about 
Well, not hindering others, uh, not really about other people potentially sinning, but Jesus shifts the attention from others to the disciples. He moves his attention, his words, to the disciples, warning them about sin and the dangers of temptation. But then also the desperation that we must have as his disciples to run from sin, run towards righteousness, running towards faithfulness, regardless of the cost. And so Jesus, in our text today that we have before us, he speaks powerfully. He uses, intentionally uses very powerful and strong, provocative language in order to force us to consider the things that are hindering us, things that lead us into temptation, potentially leading us to sin. And so with this, we come to our passage Chapter, 40, or chapter 9, uh, verse 42. And a quick note, if you notice there, most translations omit verses 44 and 46. Do you see that, perhaps in your copy? So a quick little note on verses 44 and 46. They're identical to verse 48. Identical to verse 48. Um, but most manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark, don't include 44 and 46. It's only there in verse 48. So modern scholarship felt it most faithful to stick with the majority of the text, um, the ancient texts that make up our New Testament. And so they mention it usually as a footnote. Um, so don't, don't freak out when you're like 43, 45, what, 47, that's weird. Do I need to take this back? Did they, my, mine doesn't have this, you know? So it's, it's not supposed to be there, okay. All right, so verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better, it is to your advantage. It's good for you to experience and enter life, eternal life, crippled and deformed, than with two hands and depart to hell, go to hell. Literally, the word is Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire, inextinguishable fire. Gehenna, the word used that, that Jesus uses here for hell, is the ancient place where God's people in their rebellion would offer sacrifices to idols and false gods and whatnot. Well, during the time of Christ, Gehenna was where they burned trash and, and where they burned dead animals. But also during the time of Jesus, Gehenna was metaphorically used to describe God's wrath. God's wrath being his judgment against sin. Gehenna would represent death, decay, things that are just deplorable and disgusting, like eternal death and unbearable punishment. Again, Jesus has given warnings to his followers, to his followers, to his disciples about the dangers of sin, even the temptations that lead us to sin. That's where these, these warnings are come from. He says in 43, again, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter eternity crippled than with two hands and go to hell. Now, of course, it's important to point out that to literally cut off the hand is, is misunderstanding what Jesus is getting at here. Because you can cut off hands, feet, and pluck out your eyes and be filled with sin, right? The point he's making is to rid yourself of anything, of everything that causes you to sin, that's, that's tempting in your life, tempting you to sin and to care so much about not sinning that you'll do whatever it takes to strive onward towards righteousness 
and towards a godly life, pursuing a life of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And for those who are in our reading plan through scripture tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to read 2 Corinthians 11. I think it's 1 through 15 tomorrow. And Paul echoes this sentiment of Christ as he talks to the church in Corinth, where he says, I am afraid that the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning ways, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid that you're drifting towards sin and temptation in a way that's causing you to be pulled away from sincerity and purity and your devotion to Christ, your allegiance to Christ, your dedication to Christ. You're drifting and I'm afraid you're drifting. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternity crippled than with two hands and go to hell. It's a heavy passage. Hell's a big deal. And there's a lot of questions about it. It's, it's given pretty graphic language to try to explain something that is really hard to explain without experiencing it. And so there's a lot of questions about it. So I listed seven things that you can know for sure about it as you take scripture these are seven things that I think, if you don't take anything else to Scripture, if you just take Scripture, these are seven things that I think we could agree on about hell, according to Scripture, okay? One, it is. Hell is. Two, it is eternal. Hell is eternal. It's everlasting. So we all get life. You either get eternal life or you get eternal death, but we all get eternity is what I mean. We all get eternity. Three, it's a place that you don't want to be. Trying to describe through any analogy and metaphor possible. Trying to paint a picture with words. You don't want to be here. Four, it's void of all and anything and everything good. Namely, God himself. Five, it's a place of ongoing, perpetual, and progressive decay. Things only get worse where the worm continues to eat and devour. There's a progressive nature about just how deplorable hell is. Six, hell in scripture is not a hyperbole. It's an understatement. You take your thoughts on hell, multiply it by infinity, and you're not even close. Not even close. We would hardly be able to ever use the word hell if we truly understood what it was. Seven, there's no third option. There's no on-deck circle. There's no holding zone. There's no purgatory. There's heaven and there's hell. Hell is a place of indescribable suffering, both spiritually and physically. St. Augustine wrote of this. He says, those who finally reject salvation suffer eternally both in both body and soul. There's a physical and a spiritual nature to it. Jesus continues his teaching on the seriousness of sin and the necessary pursuit of righteousness when he continues painting more examples. He's like, and if your foot causes you to sin, verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell, cast into hell. Continuing, if your eye causes you to sin, 
then tear it out. That's a mariner term used uh, in a similar way in the book of Jonah, throwing overboard, like to do away with, like forever, it's gone. Like cargo over, over the side of a boat. Tear it out, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm, their worm, the thing that's working on the people there that are present. And, and worm is not earthworm. It's maggot, intestinal worm, maggot, things that are eating dead things. Where the maggot does not die and the fire is not extinguished and quenched. Again, ongoing death and decay. Very, very gruesome, very gruesome. Regarding this portion of scripture, this particular passage, St. John Chrysostom said this, the reader of the word cannot select out comfortable passages and ignore those that make us uneasy. This is a passage that just makes us uneasy. You know, I get asked to go preach chapel at different schools here and there. Probably not gonna go talk to high schoolers about this particular passage. It's not gonna be one that you're gonna be like, oh, I wanna lead a morning devotional. Let's go to Mark 9, 43. This is compelling. It's good, right? But remind yourself, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking directly to his followers. Jesus spoke of hell to believers in warning, not sinners in condemnation. He spoke of hell to believers in warning, not to sinners in condemnation. And he continues in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? How will it have seasoning again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And here, in concluding this last verse, in verse 50, he actually creates this as an envelope where it started, this thought started with them arguing over who's the greatest. And he works through all this and gets us to this point, and it makes one teaching, as we'll see in just a moment. The fire of Gehenna, Jesus used as a metaphor, which is how it was used during his life and time. And now Jesus uses another metaphor, another metaphor of salt. Salt purifies just like fire purifies. Salt stings, and it, that's how they would use it in this, this form to be able to bring healing. Salt stings in order to bring about a benefit. And so it is with reading scripture, that stinging of conviction. So it is with biblical preaching, the stinging of conviction that is to, to lead to benefit. Salt disinfects. And without the disinfection that comes from salt, which is using, I'm trying to unpack the analogy, the metaphor that Christ is using. Without that conviction, without that disinfection, that sanctification, that purification that comes from salt, without the presence of the Spirit of God and his convicting work, his, his, his sanctifying activity within us, it's impossible for us to be brought to the Almighty. You will not see God without the conviction of the Spirit. This convicting and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is fruit and proof that God is in your life, that he's in your heart, that he's in your mind. This, this convicting is, is proof of this. This salt at work, this purification at work, a life with no activity of the Holy Spirit is a dead life. And a life that has the Holy Spirit's activity of this 
ongoing conviction and sanctification, this disinfecting, that's a living soul, a soul that's living to God. The, this convicting work of the spirit that leads to godly sorrow, that is that it leads to repentance of turning to Jesus away from sin. This convicting spirit, this disinfecting work of the spirit in our infected lives, infected with sin, gives us assurance that as we stand before God one day, we will not be convicted of sin because Jesus has already received the conviction and sentencing for our sin. So there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and there's no fear in life or death for those who are in Christ. Be convicted now and respond to that conviction and you will not receive the eternal conviction. But don't receive conviction today and you'll be eternally convicted. As we... This is that envelope sort of thought here. As you and I, as we live lives of ongoing repentance and confession, responding to the Spirit's internal work of purification and conviction, we'll not argue over who the greatest is. But to use Christ's words there in verse 50, we'll be at peace with one another. Entering the summer after my junior year of high school, I was... Uh, 16, about to turn 17, I, uh, I weighed in at the weight of a healthy offensive lineman, healthy offensive guard, approaching my senior year, uh, well into my 300s, all right? And uh, I, I felt horrible. I wasn't a strong husky boy. I was a very unhealthy husky boy. And there are many reasons, believe it or not, there are, there are many reasons um, why someone can be heavy. And some has to do with hormones, some has to do with some, that add, some completely out of their control. But for me, it was because I idolized food. Um, it was, it was my, my favorite sin. It's where I ran to, um, or walked. Um, and, and so <clears throat> entering that, that summer before my senior year, I came up with this plan. And so it was a horrible plan, I admit it. If you're a nutritionist, this, I know, but it's not, it wasn't good for me to be as heavy as I was either. Uh, but my plan was this, all right? So I, I ate a Fig Newton every day. That was all. And it would take me about five minutes to eat it because I would really enjoy it. I mean, because, you, you know, that's your meal, okay? Um, and then I would work eight and a half hours at a tree farm, like a greenhouse, 132 degrees, humid, controlled temperature, eight and a half hours a day. I drank seven liters of water a day. And then after I work, I would go home and play basketball for two to four hours under the street light there in the church parking lot with my neighbors. I desperately wanted to change. And entering my senior year, literally when I walked into class, most people didn't know me. They thought I was a new student. I had lost 110 pounds in those roughly two and a half months. Separate story, fast forward seven years. Jill and I and almost two-year-old Jeremy Paul Rose Jr., our JJ, and our six-month-old Bethany Dawn Rose, uh, we moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I attended Southeastern Seminary. I worked 50 hours a week. They wouldn't pay me for more than 10 hours overtime. And so I would get 50 hours in, usually by Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, I would have my 50 hours worked as a residential electrician. And I was taking, in the midst of that week, 15 hours 
of my master's degree studies in seminary. I'd come home after work, eat a quick bite, line the bathtub with pillows and blankets, turn the exhaust fan on in the bathroom for white noise, and I would read into the next morning, the hours of the next morning. I would get up around 4, 35 o'clock, put in a couple hours on the job site before my 8 a.m. class, and then I would drive back to the job site following going to class, work until dark, drive home, eat a quick bite, line the tub with blankets, and so forth. This went on and on as I tried to provide for my family. Now today, I enjoy, separate story, I enjoy powerlifting, I enjoy bodybuilding, I love working out, I watch my diet fairly meticulously, I take vitamins and proper supplements, I see my doctor regularly, um, I study lifting and trying to do so without bringing injury um, to my body, I'm trying to get better at that. Um, I sweat and I work and I, I do extreme things to, to condition my body for the apocalypse, uh, better known as becoming a grandpa. I want to be a healthy grandpa. Um, <clears throat> but here's my point in using these stories, and I intentionally did not use hypothetical stories. I wanted to use real stories to make it more personal for both of us. And as I was sharing with uh, others uh, in, you know, uh, with the band earlier, I was like, you know, I struggle using personal examples um, because, one, um, sometimes they make me look like a failure and ignoring the grace of God in my life. Two, it makes me, uh, I'm fearful that you'll think I'm, I'm saying things to make you think that I'm proud. Um, and so I'm hesitant to use, use personal stories. But then other times when I share personal stories, it might bring unnecessary shame on your story. And that's not my, my intention. Um, so I use personal stories on purpose, but with trepidation. But I just want it to be more personal for us both. But here's my point. You and I have done things just like this, really similar things throughout our lives together. Um, we know how to sacrifice in order to meet a goal. You've done these things. You've studied stuff. You've worked hard. You've put in hours. You've been intentional. We know how to put in the work. And you and I, we're, we're willing to put in the time and the effort and the money and the resources, the energy, if, if we believe in it enough. We'll do this if we're desperate enough for it. We'll, we'll do this if we're convinced that it's truly worth it, right? If we know something's worth it, we're gonna do it. Well, Jesus uses very strong language in our text today to work to convince you and to convince us that our walk with God, that eternity with God is something that we must be desperate for, something that we must believe in, something that we must sacrifice for, something that is worth it. I mean, what if I applied myself and disciplined myself towards holiness, righteousness, and godliness, just like I was as a determined 17-year-old trying to get healthier, or a young dad trying to work his way through seminary providing for his family? What if you applied yourself and disciplined yourself in holiness and godliness, just like you have with goals that you're pursuing right now? Things that you're working towards right now, the same intentionality, the same drive, the same energy, I mean, what would need to change in your life? Hand, foot, eye? What would need to change in order for you to better meet the goal of spiritual vitality and maturity? What would you be willing to do to be welcomed into heaven? What fire are you playing with right now that might potentially burn you? What are you tolerating right now in your life that's detrimental to your eternal destiny? What are you toying around with right now that's causing you to be spiritually unhealthy? 
cut it out. Cut it out. Stop playing games with eternity. Stop playing games with your spiritual life. Jesus today in this text is telling you that it's that important, that it's that crucial, that it's vital. Friend, we're to make it much more difficult to sin. We're to make it a lot easier to stay away from sin. We're not to be so comfortable like we are. Yes, we're gonna struggle because of our flesh, because of our old man nature, our carnal spirit that's at work within us. Yes, we're to struggle. We're gonna struggle with sin until we die, but let's live as if it's a struggle. Let's always be fighting sin and not carelessly just giving in to the enemy and his ways. I mean, caring less about fighting sin, caring less only puts fertilizer on the seed and weed of sin that's gonna choke out the growth of godliness in your life. And it's gonna choke out your life, your joy, your peace, and your faith. Cutting out the easy pathways to our favorite petty sin, friend, it's not legalism. That is not, that's, that's basic Christianity. That's simple Christianity. It's not radical Christianity. It's the very basics of Christianity. And don't just run to God in repentance after the fact. Run to him proactively as you're running from temptation, the very smell of sin, you're running away. Fight sin before you fall. Cut off the foot and limp today and don't strut through the sin and bear eternal consequences. Limping is better than strutting. And don't allow your eyes, which God intended and created and formed and fashioned, don't allow your eyes that he has created to view him and his glory and his activity. Don't allow the eyes that he's given you to become distributors of this evil and evil desires that are gonna feed the, your flesh with things that are gonna poison your life. The hand, the foot, the eye. The eye, uh, Salvin the presbyter said this, the eye colludes in causing sin by making an entryway into the heart. Remember that song? Be careful little eyes what you see. Remember that? Be careful little feet where you go. Be careful little hands what you touch, yeah? Inspired from this passage. Salvin continues, knowing that the lights of the eyes are like windows to our hearts and that all corrupt desires enter us through the eyes as though through a natural crevice, our Lord asks us to veil them from wandering about in order to resist the spreading of their toxic illusions. Those illusions will not take firmer roots in our, so those illusions will not take ever firmer root in our hearts having first budded in the eye. Or as Paul would say in Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do not present your hand, your foot, your eyes to sin as tools, as instruments as tools for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members, hand, feet, eyes, to God as tools and instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Friend, obeying God is greater than obeying your body's passions. And if the whole, if it feels good, do it mentality. No, if it feels good, don't do it because it's probably wrong. More often than not. Friend, obeying God is better than obeying your sinful desires. And obeying God comes with eternal rewards. That includes life. Pray for eyes to see that it's this important. Ask God to convince you that your spiritual health and your growth and the kingdom of God is more important than your physical life and your comfort. That the kingdom is worth it. More important than anything else in your life. Ask him to convince you of this because we don't believe it. We don't believe it. Nobody in this room believes this perfectly. We doubt this all the time. Many times a day, we're led to believe the kingdom of God is not worth it. And we sell out. You've got to see it as important and essential. And friend, once you do, as with anything, you'll be willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. I got a text this week from a man asking me to help him train physically. And his text began this way. And again, this, don't let this language offend you. This is just what he said. Man, I feel like a fat lard. I'm depressed, overwhelmed, and anxious. My diet is terrible. My discipline is shot. I'm not active. I feel alone and stressed all the time. Had a weekend with old friends and their families. I was anxious and fearful most of the time. 3.15, checking in. It's his weight. Pray for me, brother. Something has got to change. My reply, I feel like you're telling me here that you're ready to change, like you're desperate enough to change and do the things required to change. There's a difference between wanting change and doing what's required and essential to bring that change into reality. Do you want it bad enough to do what's required to change? Only you know this. It's as if in our text this morning, it's as if God is asking us, just how bad do you want it, honestly? The value of the kingdom of God is so great that no sacrifice is too great to make for it. Hand, foot, eye, man, these represent some of the most precious things that we have. And yet, it's better off if we lose them than to lose the kingdom of God. Jesus says, talking about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field which a man found and he covers it up real quick and then in his joy and excitement, he goes and sells everything that he has. Everything to buy that field. When you truly see the value in something, you'll do anything to get it. You've proven it to yourself. You've proven it to others. When we see the value of the kingdom, the value of even having two hands seems insignificantly less. Man, you and I, we want peace. We want a life that's filled with hope and faith and life. Yet we're often not willing to follow God as we must in order to experience this peace and this hope and this faith. And Jesus, he's not hiding, he's not playing things soft here. Jesus is, is pretty bold and clear in this text and he's helping us. And he's not being a bully. He's using strong language to get our attention. He's telling you the truth in a way that you're going to hear it, that you'll get it, that you won't miss it. It's provocative language. It's intense. And I pray that you deeply consider the words of Jesus this morning and follow him 
and sincere and humble obedience. And as I wrap things up, I want to ask you a few questions in regards to this text. I want you to think through these. Right now, where is it in your life that you're making it far too easy to let sin grow? Where is it? It might not be sin yet. It might just be temptation, but you know it's temptation. You try playing it off, convincing yourself that it's not really that bad. Where is it in your life that you're making it far too easy to accommodate that? What is it in your life that you're allowing to stay around and actually accommodate that could end up being your downfall? Deal with that. Cut it out. Cut it off. Real talk here. If you could plan your affair, for those that are married, if you could plan your affair, where do you see it happening? How would it happen? Like with what's going on in your life right now, where would that affair happen? Deal with that. It's not a game. It's serious. Cut it off. If you could plan your moral failure with what's going on in your life today, the resources, the job, the people, if you could plan your moral failure, how would you plan it with what's going on in your life today? Cut those things out. Deal with that. What what is it that's currently a secret to you? And you don't want anybody else to know it. Things pop in your mind, don't they? Deal with that. Deal with it. I mean, no one wants to go out in a terrible way. As Paul would say, nobody wants to go out and make shipwreck of their faith. But in today's text, we're facing a moment of crisis where Jesus is asking us, just how badly do you want to follow me? What are you willing or not willing to do to follow me closely? How bad do you want to finish well? Do you really want me? Do you re- are you really laying hold to eternity? And do you see it as worth it? And does it make a difference to your life today? And maybe more simply, it's Jesus asking a deeper question of, do you really, do you realize just how good it is to be with me. Earlier, we, d- we discussed hell. We discussed Gehenna. Gehenna being the metaphor that was used by Jesus to describe eternity without God. A picture of God's wrath, his, his wrath being his judgment against sin. For those who aren't Christians, Scripture clearly teaches us that you, unfortunately, you must endure Gehenna of God's wrath forever. If you're not a Christian, this is the way that it is. This is because of your sin. This is because you're not doing and being what God requires. That's tragic news. But because of Jesus, there's good news associated with this tragic news for you. The gospel tells us that Jesus willingly endured Gehenna, not metaphorically, 
He literally endured God's wrath for you so that you could enjoy eternal paradise with God in peace. The gospel tells us that Jesus willingly placed himself under the judgment of God so that you could be placed under the grace of God. He did this for you. He does this for us. This is where your forgiveness comes from. It's through the finished work of Jesus and he's accomplished it fully for you. All you must do is believe and you get God back. You believe Christ and you're forgiven of your sin and you're given purpose and meaning, hope and peace. Ask God for faith. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for eyes to see that Jesus is the Savior sent into the world to save you from Gehenna, to save you from hell, to save you from wrath, to save you from judgment. Ask him to give you eyes to see this. Christian, this is your hope. It's not drifting carelessly towards sin. It's collapsing carefully towards Jesus. You don't have to run fast enough or jump high enough. You just have to collapse in his direction. That's believing Jesus Christ. Christian, cut out the things, as Hebrews 12, 1 would say, that so easily slows us down and hinders us. The weight and the sin is what it says. Sin is where it's obviously wrong. It's against God's law and his way. But the weight, he says the weight and the sin, that weight are things that just aren't helpful. That might lead to sin. Let's lay those things aside. This is the good news of the gospel that we get to remember as we approach the Lord's table this morning. The sacrament, the Lord's Supper. We're gonna have bread and we're gonna have juice. That bread is symbolic of the body of Christ that he lived for you as your representative to cancel out your life that you know is full of sin. You're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine, that red liquid symbolic of the red blood that flowed from Christ from many wounds that he endured for you. As he became the atoning sacrifice for your sin. And you've got a lot of it. I do too. As you take and dip and taste this morning through communion, remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for you. And you're not acknowledging in this moment your perfection or your pursuit. You're acknowledging the finished, completed work of Jesus that atones for your pursuit not being big enough and good enough and your performance not being sufficient. So as you come, Christian, this is for you. No matter how weary you might feel, no matter how heavy you might feel in your sin, you're not coming because of your work. You're coming to the table because of Christ's work. So though you feel disqualified to lay hold today, so long as you approach with a humble heart, with your eyes upward towards Christ, you can come and receive with joy the work of Christ for you. Christian, this is for you. Let's pray together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has come. 
Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now on this special time, I ask that the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, I invite you to come. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage here and there's self-serve tables with the elements of the bread and the juice and the wine on the back two corners. Think through what Christ has done for you, what he's endured for you, and come remembering his work. You can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.